Welcome to the third podcast in our 2021 Advent Sermon Series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called The True Light. Last week we talked about John the Baptist and the smelly, hairy, nasty guy and how you should be more like him. Remember that? So I also brought up Hebrews chapter 12 and gave us some things to think about uh, when it comes to witnesses. John the Baptist was a witness to Jesus' coming. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us this long list of witnesses uh, to faith uh, and to the life-giving faith that happens through relationship with God, and then chapter 12 happens, uh, and the writer says we should also be that kind of witness. So we ended last week with what I hope was some practical steps that you can take that skip the camel hair and the locusts and all that jazz. You can eat as much honey as you want. That's the awesome part. But all the other nasty stuff is not important. What is important for us to look more like Uh, John the Baptist is those things you see on the screen. Lay aside every weight. I mentioned that's not necessarily sin, but the things that we do too much of, to excess, maybe we obsess with even, that burden us down. We talked about also, in addition to that, the the sin that clings closely, that constricts or even suffocates our spiritual lives. And we talked about running with endurance uh, or another way to translate that I mentioned is patient endurance. We don't know how long the road is or how many bumps in the road will come our way. Yet it is the journey before us that we're called to. So patiently endure with Christ as we move through this life. And what do we do? We look to Jesus. That's what John the Baptist did. That's the first three chapters we see uh, a number of times where uh, uh, John the Gospel writer mentions John the Baptist saying to others, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Don't look at me. Don't look at my camel hair. Don't look at anything else around you or anyone else around you. Everything else will fall short. Everything else will distract. Everything else will fail you. Behold the Lamb. Get your eyes on Him. And if we could be a church that shines like that and follows that witness example, wouldn't that be awesome, right? For people to see Jesus, get your eyes off of other stuff. That's what we talked about last week. Now it is December 12th. We are in that sweet spot of, or maybe it's not so sweet for you, but we're right in the middle of month where here's what typically happens. At least this is what the pattern is that I've noticed as, as we've grown older and we've raised kids and you get, you're involved with numerous things. Here's, here's the pattern that I see every year. The first part of December is dedicated to stuff usually outside of your family. You've got school programs to attend. You've got office parties or other business things to do. And they kind of seem like they front load the beginning of the, of the month. And then the end of the month is more the family-oriented stuff, right? 
It's what we're doing next week. Uh, and then you have all your holiday celebrations, your family gatherings that maybe go on and on. Maybe yours never end, or they feel like they never end, right? And so now we're right smack in the middle of that, okay? And you may be feeling you've had enough of it already, depending on where you're at or what you've been through this past year, even this past season, with being sick or, or changes at work, and now uh, maybe Christmas time is just another burden. So this is what I see, and this is why I'm, I'm so excited about the passage this morning. It's for everybody who's tired. Everybody who's had too many burdens. Everybody who needs not just a temporary rest, but a, but a rest that goes on and on. The beauty and the power and the significance of this passage cannot be overstated. So here's how I want to approach it this morning. I want to pray again. So if you join me, close your eyes just for a few moments. Let's put everything else out of the way in the busyness of the season and whatever you've been through in the last couple of weeks, maybe even this morning, and whatever that lies before you that you already feel flustered and burdened with. We're going to put all that stuff aside. Just Close your eyes and let's pray and let's magnify Christ together. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for the opportunity this morning to behold you. The songs that we've already sung draw us into your presence. They remind us again of how wonderful you are. Lord, as we consider what John has for us this morning, Warm our hearts, sharpen our minds, draw us into your presence. We need it. And I pray, Lord, even that you would bind our wandering hearts to you, as the song says, that all these other things would, would just drift away so that we could have a few moments here in time to focus on what is most important. Jesus, you are the light who has come. And that light changes everything. So make your gospel rich and wonderful in our hearts and minds this morning. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Here is this morning's passage. We are still in John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 9 through 13. The true light, John says, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Some, what we just read, are some of the most important words in the Bible, and at the same time, some of the most challenging to fully grasp. There's a lot of books, a lot of volumes, a lot of ink that's been spilled on just those few verses that we read together. They form a bridge from the original testament, the original covenant, 
and the laws and all that God gave through Moses to Israel, it links all of that to the New Testament, the New Covenant, what Jesus came to do and establish, not just for the first century Christians, but for all of us. They bind all of Scripture together and open up our eyes to a brand new reality that does not disappoint. So we continue, John continues, with the metaphor of light. The true light did the following. First, it shined. Verses 9 through 10, at least through the beginning of verse 10. What does he say? The true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. All the waiting comes to an end, and I mean waiting from the original Testament perspective, the original covenant, all about the prophets, major and minor, a huge chunk of the Bible itself, all of them uh, are play a part in that, in that uh, conveying of the message that there is something better coming, okay? And that we see finally here in John chapter one. He chose to come into our darkness. Now, what does that mean? If the light is God, then how does the light come into the world? Let's consider light for a few moments. Light uh, uh, is an explosive thing. If you've been to any kind of light, um, Christmas light shows uh, recently, if you've been to Bentleyville up in Duluth, that whole area is kind of not so nice, but you go in there in the evening uh, at Christmas time and they turn on the lights and it's a whole nother Disney World kind of experience. We just did a, a Christmas light show with, with my in-laws, Jennifer's parents and Ames. Uh, same kind of thing. There's disco balls they had hanging from trees, laser lights everywhere. Light penetrates in a way that gets your attention. Why else would these people do these light displays? You see more than just light. It's like, it's like the environment, the, the, the trees, the landscaping, everything comes to light in a different way. That's why so many people go out to see these things. Uh, in fact, uh, maybe you've got a neighbor like this. Now, this is an actual house that I saw on the news this past week. It hit the news because they decided to give you know, a tribute to a certain Christmas uh, movie that I do not endorse that's been out there that a lot of people have seen. Anyway, uh, the owner of the home gave tribute and wanted his house to look like the house in the movie, and maybe you're recognizing it right now. It's somewhere, I can't remember the name of the town, somewhere in California. What do you suppose the city did in response to this? They fined him hundreds of dollars a day because of that display now, what do you suppose the neighbors did? Did they agree with the city? Can you imagine living next to that? I mean, honestly, do you want that blazing through your windows throughout the evening every night for weeks? The neighbors stood up in support of this guy, fought the city, and they won. So all of the uh, uh, fines, I guess, the hundred I don't know how many hundreds of dollars, it was starting to add up apparently because it made national news, uh, all those fines were taken away. The neighbors won. They, they beat City Hall. And as far as I know, he still got his lights on. It's ridiculous, right? But as Americans, we like that stuff. 
light penetrating joy, happiness, feel good stuff, right? Even the neighbors are probably annoyed by him, stood up for him. Well, let's take a moment to contrast what we're used to in our culture with what Bethlehem may have looked like. Now, some artist's idea, maybe this is a little bit brighter than what would have looked like. Uh, this morning, we heard uh, a reading from the book of Micah, minor prophet, speaking of Bethlehem in this region that would have been very dark. Imagine going to Palestine centuries ago. No city lights, no displays, uh, no street lights, none of that kind of stuff. There's just a few oil lamps burning in the evening. And if the moon isn't full, it would be dark, right? Like complete darkness. Now, the interesting thing about that prophet Micah, he speaks of someone coming at a time where not just it was dark at night, but all of Israel, all of Judah at the time was also very dark. You see, Micah was speaking to the southern kingdom at the time where the Assyrians were the major world power. And they were about to, depending on when he actually wrote, uh, crushing the northern kingdom, Israel, and they were breathing down the necks of the southern kingdom of Judah. So let's go back and look at that. What does Micah the prophet have to speak of? Well, we heard verse 2, you are too little to be among the clans of Judah, O Bethlehem, but from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. Nothing comes from Bethlehem. It's this tiny backwater place in the middle of nowhere. No lights, no nothing, no prestige, no power in the kingdom. Nothing. And he goes on to say that this person uh, shall give them up until the time when she was in labor is given birth. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand, shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord, and they shall dwell secure. He shall be great, and he shall be their peace. All of these things, if you were in Judah at the time, all of these things would sound nice if they weren't just so impossible. Because we're talking about Assyria. He goes on to speak of the land of Assyria, their swords and their power or whatever. And he's saying Bethlehem is going to stand up, and, and somebody from nowhere in Bethlehem is going to stand up against Assyria? Not likely. So many times the prophets draw our attention to what at the time would have been impossible. No one thinks like that. No one does that to take what is just so plain and ordinary and nothing and say something like hope, like peace, like power will, would ever possibly come from a place like that. Kind of reminds me of the Lord of the Rings. I don't know how many times I mentioned Lord of the Rings. Probably way too much, right? Uh, Sam and, uh, 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 oh, for crying out loud, who Frodo, thank you. <laughs> Almost said Bilbo. I knew that wasn't right. <laughs> Frodo, Sam, right? The ring. Who would have thought? How unlikely, right? That they could go on the journey and actually destroy the ring. Any Lord of the Ring geeks other than me? Come on. Okay, good, good, right? You know what I'm talking about. That's the beauty of the story, right? It just can't happen. There's no way they can do the journey and, and fulfill their, uh, their quest, right? But they do. 
I think Tolkien uh, borrowed a lot from Scripture uh, as he wrote, not just from World War II and uh, the desperation of World War at the time, but also from Scripture. There, uh, we, we want to have light that is overwhelming, that is powerful, that is significant, that gets our attention. And Scripture draws us to light that comes that's minimal, that's gradual, that doesn't scream at His presence, uh, that's not laser-powered, and there's no music in the background that you tune to on your radio to make it all the more impressive. It's quiet. It's unassuming. It's humble. But from that beginning, a whole different light begins. I love how John draws us into the setting of the story. That's where we're at. So not only does it shine, it is what? It's rejected. What does he tell us? Uh, and a number of times here, he says it is rejected. And, and who rejects it? He says the world. That is a major theme in the Gospel of John. Seventy Over 70 times he mentions the world. And just a handful of times, uh, the world is a positive thing or even a neutral thing. Vast majority of times that John speaks of the world, it is a negative thing. It is a broken thing. Is at least dysfunctional. If not a place that's opposed to God, Filled with sin, it is a major theme of negativity. The world is not as it should be, is what is behind what John is saying here. Now, if you're watching online, or, or, or maybe, you're, maybe you're in a place in life where you don't agree with what I say or what the Gospels are teaching, I'll bet you we can agree on one thing this morning. The world is screwed up. Can we just start there? I think that's a pretty good foundational starting point. No matter what philosophical or religious, if anything, uh, beliefs you have, can we just start there? Uh, look at the news, watch what's going on, hear the problems that are all around us all the time. Can we agree the world is messed up? And the fact that we want or even demand something better is a clue why we're here in the first place. It's not the way it's supposed to be, but there is something else. Now, we will disagree eventually. Uh, if, if you're watching or you know, you're tracking so far, maybe you don't believe the Bible, we'll probably disagree on certain points after that. But John, John tells us about what his understanding of what's wrong with the world is and because it's the way it is, what that then points us to. The world didn't even know its creator. So right away, that kind of brings us back to the first part of the chapter and what we talked about, that the Word was uh, with God and is God, okay? Way back at the beginning of the chapter. So uh, he is about, in the next few verses, to reveal who the Word is. He hasn't used even the name of Jesus yet, but we know that's where he's going so Jesus is God. Uh, he was there in creation. This is his world, and he's coming back to do something with his world. Now, we already mentioned gradual light, right? Uh, uh, the, the demands placed on God are extreme. God, you better do what I want as I want it right now, or you're not God. We hear that a lot, right? If God was God, why this? Why this messed up world? 
Why is it the way it is? What is God going to do about it? Well, he is doing something about it, and that's what John is cluing us in on. But he begins at this point. Those who should have known him, let's start there, in this broken world, that should have realized that the Creator has come, that the light has come, they didn't even realize, those who should have realized it didn't realize it. They weren't aware that the Father was working His plan through all of the Word, through all of Scripture, through all of these centuries of work that God had done through Israel. Those who should have seen it did not. Rejection is a part of a long-term pattern that has led us all the way through the original Testament to this point in the book of John. We start all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve treasured creations of God made in the image of God, given the garden, given the world, the expansion of the kingdom over the whole world. That was God's goal through them in the first place, yet they rejected this perfect existence that God gave them, choosing their own, yet choosing their own way, yet there was grace. God did not wipe them out. God gave them an opportunity to live, yet as outside of the garden, outside of his perfect plan. What else happens? Well, the giving of the law, we mentioned that a lot. The law comes through Moses, not as a means to gain grace, but the law comes as an extension of grace. The people have already been redeemed out of Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, and now God says, you are mine. The book of Exodus, he says it again, I think in the book of Deuteronomy, you are my treasured possession. And he calls them his children. And the extension of grace is now live for me, obey me, follow in my ways. The commandments, again, are not a way to earn grace, but a, a way that grace extends through their lives. Yet they chose to reject God's plan in order to over and over again have their way, make their own kingdom, follow their own passions. God, you must not be for me. You're against me, so I will find my own way. Yet there was grace. Even through all of those centuries, God sends the prophets. God puts up with their idea of a king and their idea of a kingdom in order to try to woo them back to him. And then the coming of the light in John chapter 1. The light came to Israel first. And John tells us they didn't receive it. They should have known, but they didn't. They rejected. It was foreign. Their father, as children of God, came and they said no. They rejected the idea that they would need anything beyond what they already have and what they could produce on their own. Yet, grace is coming, coming in a way that outshines everything else. True light shined, yep, it was rejected, and now there are some who receive it. Let's read those two verses again. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 12 begins with a conjunction, but the story is not over. Some did reject. Some continue to reject. But this also 
happens. Even though many reject, there are those who will, as John says, receive and believe. Now, what does it mean? What does that mean? To receive and believe. John uses those words. All other New Testament writers use similar words. This is an idea that continues as we establish in our, in our understanding of the New Testament what this covenant is about. So one thing it isn't about is universalism. It's for people who receive and believe in Jesus. So it doesn't say uh, that the light came for everyone and there's no uh, need to respond to it. No. It is focused. It is direct. The Jews had received the law. We know that. We see that. That's obvious. And they believed that God existed, but that doesn't make them believers or followers in this new way that Jesus has come to establish. So here's the big problem, not just for the Jews in ancient times. Here's a big problem for all of us. You can't receive and believe in his name if you're convinced that you've already received and believed without him. Okay? Let me do that again. You can't receive and believe in his name if you're already convinced that you've already done that. I've already received and believed without Jesus. If you believe that you've received something, or in other words, you're convinced that you already have what you need, and if you believe that you have the ability to provide anything else you may possibly need in the future, if that's you, you've already received and believed in something or someone else. It's the in his name part that makes all the difference. It's focused, it's exclusive. John doesn't give multiple choice options. This light is the light. In his name is our one option to receive and believe. So to receive and believe, what does that mean? It means there's something central in my life that I need that is currently missing. If I come to Christ, the true light, then I come to him to receive him because there's a void here. There's an emptiness. I don't have everything I need. And all the things that I've tried and all things that I've read and all the things I've seen, all the things that have been told me, yeah, maybe some, some of those are good or not so good, but I still have something there that I know I can't fulfill I can't fill up on my own. And I can't ever do that. But I believe that Jesus can. Now, that belief is what, we're, is what we mean by faith, a faith response to Christ. And that is not a perfect, well-established, all the problems have immediately ended faith, or, or with that faith. That's where I get into so many conversations with people that the misunderstanding of receive and believe is everything becomes perfectly understandable. All the questions are gone. I've become instantaneously a different person in every way, my thinking and my emotions. What we see in the Gospels is mustard seed faith, what Jesus talks about. 
that coming to this receive and believe moment is, I, I don't know. I, all I know is that there's something missing. And I believe it's you, Jesus. So I'm going to respond. I'm going to begin responding. It's an action to you and not any of these other things that I thought might have worked. It's that beginning. Even You can leave the question mark on it. Okay? You can do that. I don't know, but it might be you. That's okay. It's that tiny little mustard seed that Jesus takes and grows, becoming what it is that eventually, yeah, you look back on it and say, yeah, it was, it was a messy start. And I had so many questions and frustrations that I didn't know. God took that and grew something new in me. Receiving and believing in Jesus also means this. My history of a broken relationship with God, and then as it extends to others, the history of broken relationships ends. God takes me back as his child, just the way I am. All the messiness and imperfection and all the hurts and all the sins and uh, all that I'd like to forget. He takes me with all of that and says, I give you the right to become my child, to be in my family, to be in that place where you can reach out to me as your father. With all the dividing walls that have ever been in place, the walls of, of law and legalism, uh, all those things that kept me from a deep relationship with Jesus, he says they're gone and establishes a new relationship with me because of his grace. Takes me back into fellowship and makes me again what we saw with Adam and Eve, a treasured possession, justified, all of sin and the, and the effects of sin gone. Me, he does that with me. The person who rebelled from him, the person who shook my, uh, my fist, his fist, her fist at him, the person that said, thanks but no thanks, the person that said, there's got to be a better way than that. No matter what, you, as you receive and believe, become a treasured child, born again. That's where John takes us when we get to chapter 3, speaking with Nick as Jesus speaks with Nicodemus, discovering, as, as Nicodemus does, at least in some way, the mystery of becoming a child of God. Born again. Now, one more thing here. We wrap it up. He, he ends this way. All who uh, received him, who believed in his name, become children of God, who were born not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's not ethnicity. It's not background at all. Uh, and it's not determined by will. And I think that's an interesting thing to land on here because the, the first reading is, yeah, I, I, I will take charge of my life and I will become something I'm not because I, I will it to be. My background, my, I have the law, I, I'm a better person because of that, that kind of will. But the will can go different ways. 
The will can either say out of pride or arrogance or foolishness, I can do it. I can do it on my own, thanks, but no thanks. The will can also twist this in other ways, like there's no way I could ever get it. If you depend on your will, you may find I'll never deserve it. I was thinking this past week of a, of a guy, uh, an old friend I knew on the Rosebud and conversations that we had. I, I knew him for a few years. I saw him grow up and I know he got involved in different gangs and uh, really made a mess of his life. And we had a long talk one afternoon about Christ and about redemption, about grace, about becoming a child of God. And he just so firmly rejected that. His will said, no, not me. God can't love me. He can't forgive me. You don't know what I've done. I don't know how many times he said that. You don't know what I've done we talked about a lot of different things, but I don't know where he's at today. I don't know what happened with his life. But his will said, no, it can't be me. So I think of so many people I've known, not just him, but so many people I've interacted with, that the will is a, an absolute, continuing, absolute rejection. God cannot be that gracious. He cannot be that forgiving. You don't know what I've done. <laughs> now I'm looking at you, whoever else is watching from wherever. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll never know what you've done. But maybe you've had those conversations with each other, maybe with God. And this stuff sounds good, but there's no way he can forgive that. There's no way he could come into my life. There's no way I could ever be a part of a church and be around other cleaned up nice people. There's no way I could do this receive, believe thing. You don't know what I've done. This message this morning, these verses are for everyone whose will has gone in one or the other direction in rejecting Christ, in rejecting the light. Because nothing that you've done has ever made you deserving of Jesus. And there's nothing you've ever done that has taken you so far away from Christ that his grace cannot cover, that his arms of redemption cannot reach out and grab you right where you're at and say, I give you the right to become my child. That is the glory and wonder and the mystery of God's love displayed on the cross that begins in the manger. This grace upon grace keeps singing out the beauty of this good news. If you've ever been in a place where you've wrestled with, can it truly be true for me? And the answer is absolutely. God loves you. That's why Jesus came. Stop, I implore you, rejecting his love. Make this December the time where that little mustard seed of faith can begin, where you reject everything else and say, yep, this time I need and I want you, Jesus. I receive. Let's pray.
Lord, we come to you humbled to the ground. How could it be that your love would extend, that your light would come into this world to give us the opportunity to respond? How can it be such amazing love, unending grace? We are humbled to the ground just to ponder that kind of love this morning. And Lord, as we receive you, as we believe in you, we know that we are exalted to the sky because we are brought into your family, not based on anything we've done. And you even address those things that are hidden that we can't believe we did. And you come in and you save and you restore and you bring us in. Lord Jesus, at this time, work anew so we can ponder again what you can do in our lives. If we're listening this morning or watching and we've rejected, soften our hearts and open our minds to receive and believe as you give the grace and strength to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.